0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts
1: on how to increase healthcare care capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Ishita Desai. Physicians can earn a healthy salary once their careers get rolling, but even after 30 years of practice, about one out of four doctors ends up with a net worth under $1 million. That's where today's guest comes in. Dr. Jim Dolly founded The White Coat Investor 10 years ago to help physicians achieve financial security. He provides a wealth of investing and other financial advice through a blog, a podcast, a newsletter, a YouTube channel, online courses, and many, many other resources. The White Coat Investor also helps people find financial advisors, insurance policies, and options for paying off student loans. I'm also personally a huge fan of the podcast. I've learned a tremendous amount. Jim, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So one of the things that you know I, I really enjoyed about your podcast is you're, you're one of us, you're a clinician, and so it's very relatable. And I'd love to just hear your backstory in terms of when did you first even get an inkling that you're interested in healthcare and, and particularly EM?
0: You remember those surveys we take in eighth grade about careers? (laughs) Mine said I should be a doctor. I mean, it's been a long time that I was planning on a doctor uh, as a career, and I never really deviated from it. I I remember there was one point, uh, probably my junior year in college, when I called up my dad and said, Dad, if I go into medicine, I'm not going to be out of training until I'm 31. And that seemed like forever to me, right? 31 seemed really old. And he had, of course, a very different perspective on how old 31 was and and told me, you know, you're going to be 31 then anyway, you might as well be doing what you want to do at that point. And so I did, applied to medical school and and got in at the University of Utah and uh, thoroughly enjoyed my four years of education. You know, a lot of people hate medical school. I loved medical school. It was really fun. I was finally learning what I wanted to learn. Uh, I had a lot of great friends. It was, you know, a class of only 100, and so you got to know everybody and, We played a lot of foosball and did a fair amount of skiing and rock climbing. And of course, a lot of studying and it was a great education and thoroughly enjoyed it. I remember one of those lunch and learns, the second year of medical school, somebody came in and and I'm like, wow, that guy's a lot like me. And he was an emergency physician. And up until that point, I thought I was going to go into family practice and kind of changed my mind. And I was kind of cemented with my first rotation in emergency medicine and and that's what I've been doing the rest of my career since then. But how I got into it, you know, I think it's the same as most people. I love science and, and enjoy helping people. And so that's how I ended up in medicine. And why emergency medicine? I guess it just fits my personality. I'm a little bit of, a, of the ADD type. I like to get results relatively quickly. I like diagnosing. Um, which a lot of people get their patients sent to them already with a diagnosis. I kind of enjoy that process. And I like not knowing what I'm going to be doing when I head into work each day.
1: So it's interesting you you mentioned this eighth grade survey, and then you know you've also really loved med school. I also loved med school, so uh, I can totally relate to that that experience. I'm curious if if you were to take that survey today, what do you think you would say about kind of what you should be doing?
0: You know it was interesting. Um, you know what else? the survey said I wanted to do was one, the second one was be a writer, which I've now done, you know, I'm the author of three books and of course write a blog. And the third thing was a heavy equipment operator, you know, like those big cranes and those big excavators and dump trucks. And I haven't figured out how to have that career yet. I'm still working on that, but uh, maybe I can have all three of those careers by the time all is said and
1: done. It would be interesting to see what on the list was at the bottom. (laughs) What did it say you absolutely should not be doing?
0: I can't remember, but that would be interesting information to go back and look.
1: (laughs) So, you know, you went through this very admirable kind of path. You enjoyed yourself. You're having a good time. What kind of got you interested in finance? Like, when did that become uh, an interest of yours? And then how did the White Coat Investor really get started? What was the initial kind of uh, foray into that?
0: You know, lots of doctors kind of angle off into finance or into real estate or that sort of stuff um, because they get burned out on medicine or because they're not enjoying what they're doing. And that really wasn't the case for me. Um, you know, even residency, residency was my favorite job. Yes, it was hard, but I loved it. I was learning stuff all the time and doing all kinds of new stuff and seeing great patients with interesting diseases and injuries. And, and I really loved that. But about halfway through residency, I realized that every financial interaction I'd ever had, had ended badly for me. You know, I'd basically been ripped off by a recruiter, by an appraiser, by a mortgage lender twice, uh, by an a insurance agent. And, you know, the one that kind of broke, you know, was the straw that broke the camel's back was a financial advisor. It was a, it was a commissioned agent masquerading as a financial advisor, really. And I finally said enough is enough. If I don't start learning about this stuff, I'm just going to keep getting ripped off. And so I kind of embarked on this self-study process. I started reading books and, um you know, perusing blogs, participating on internet forums. And after a few years realized I was doing a whole lot more teaching than I was learning. And I got sick of typing the same stuff into the internet over and over again. And so I said, well, if I start a blog, I can just post a link to it and then I don't have to type the same stuff in. And that was a big motivation actually for starting the white coat investor blog back in May, 2011. Uh, but I started it as a business from day one. I mean, I was trying to make money. I put ads up that first week and it was kind of fun the first year, where my daughter would climb up on my knee and ask, how much money did you make today on your blog, daddy? And I'd say a buck 37, somebody clicked on an ad, you know? And, uh, and, you know, it really didn't make much money for two or three years. It took quite a while for me to figure out how bloggers actually make money. But since then, it's grown into, you know, uh, quite a business. We have about 12 people working for us now. And so it's exciting to create jobs that are good jobs with good benefits and good salaries. And I've enjoyed the entrepreneurial aspect of it as well. But the drive behind it is the passion. You know, I want doctors to not get ripped off like I did. That was basically the reason I started the blog. And it's still the reason I'm I'm on this podcast today, you know, promoting it a little bit is because I don't want doctors to get ripped off. They are wonderful people who have dedicated their lives to the healing of the sick and injured, and they're getting taken advantage of way too often. It's a terrible statistic, the one you mentioned at the top of the podcast, that 25% of them are not millionaires by the end of their career, you know, after... 30 years of $200,000, $300,000 a year, they still haven't accumulated a million dollars. And I think that's a real tragedy. And uh, those are actually the people I want to help the most. You know, the ones who are doing awesome, I'm not too worried about, but the ones who are struggling are the ones that I want to see have a little bit more financial success in their life because of all the benefits it will bring to their lives and their practices.
1: That makes sense. And I'm curious if you've started gaining a following in other clinical specialties, you know, nursing, PAs. Are you seeing traction among other clinicians that also have a lot of the same questions, I would imagine?
0: For sure. I mean, 95% of personal finance and investing is the same for everybody. You know, let's not kid ourselves that we're totally unique. You know, there's a few unique things for doctors, but not that many. Um, If I look at my audience, it's about 80% physicians and their trainees, another 10% are dentists and their trainees. Then the other 10% are made up of various other high income professionals, a lot of which are in the healthcare field, you know, PAs and NPs and pharmacists and small business owners and attorneys and a hodgepodge of other professions. But what they all have in common is they all tend to be in the upper tax brackets.
1: Got it. And so, you know, given that you were inspired to do this because you didn't want to repeat yourself over and over, one of the benefits of, of course, a podcast is people can watch and play it. So for the listeners out there, what are some of the most important things about investing in financial planning you've learned uh, that you wish everyone knew And obviously, that's like asking someone to condense their life's work down to cancer. I get (laughs) it. Um, But if you you think of what's on the top of your mind right now as we're talking, what would that be?
0: Well, uh, just a few broad principles I'd throw out in response to that question. The first one is to figure out what you care about. You know, we all care about different stuff and spend your money there. So be selectively extravagant on the stuff that you really care about, whether that's cars or vacations or a house or eating out or clothing or your entertainment, whatever. And then be generally frugal on everything else. And that will allow you to really maximize your happiness with your money. You know, it's amazing how many people think somebody else cares what they drive. Nobody cares what you drive. Your coworkers don't care. Your patients don't care. Nobody cares, you know. If you're not a car person, Uh, You know, drive something cheap, you know, and spend your money elsewhere on the stuff you really care about. Uh, Another principle is that it's much easier, and I think people dramatically overestimate the difficulty of doubling your income. You know, a lot of people feel like they're locked into their salary for some reason. And over the years, I have been really impressed at just how easy it can be to increase your income. And you have to pay attention to it. It has to be a priority to you. But whether it is your main job and it's asking for a raise or it's switching to a new job and a new employer or whatever, or it's starting some side gig, it's surprisingly easy To increase your income a lot easier than most people think it is. A lot of people are of the mindset, woe is me. I'm only an internist. I can't possibly keep up with those ophthalmologists and orthopedic surgeons or whatever. And the truth is the intra-specialty pay range is much wider than the inter-specialty pay range, right? I've met pediatricians that are making seven figures a year. I've met pediatricians that are making five figures a year. It's a huge range, And so do not feel stuck with where your income is. Then the last thing I would say, invest your time actively, you know, in the pursuits, in your practice, in your side gigs, whatever you're doing and keep your investing both simple and passive. So invest your time actively, invest your money passively. And I think if you follow those principles, you're likely to become financially successful.
1: That's good advice. I mean, for the record, for those listening, I do care what car you drive. And so don't uh, don't think nobody cares because I, <laughs> I keep track of what everyone in the world is driving. in, in regards to um, your other point about why folks believe that they're locked in, why do you think that is like, do you think that's something that's just part of the medical culture or like, why, why is there this kind of overriding belief that, uh, you have a, a bracket and you got to stay within it?
0: Well, part of it, I think is doctors don't like to negotiate. We don't like confrontation, you know, medical school and residency select for people that don't like confrontation. And so that's part of it, is we're, we're very unlikely to e- even negotiate our, our salaries at all. And that's particularly true for women. Uh, they're even less likely to negotiate their salaries, but it's a problem all the way across medicine. And part of it is the trend toward employment. So many of us now are employees, and this has become particularly profound in dentistry. Dentists are becoming employees of, of corporate dental management practices, uh, where they used to mostly be business owners. And so where a lot of us used to be uh, owners of our own business and, and captains of our ship and how much we made had a lot to do with our business savvy and how hard we worked. You know, and now a lot of us are locked into a W-2 job. We actually have a salary. And so that's part of what makes us feel like we're locked into it. But part of it is simply just a scarcity mentality, and we assume that there's only this much money, and, and that's it. There can never be any more in the world, and that just is not the way the business world works. Most successful business people are concentrating on growing the pie more than trying to get a bigger piece of it.
1: What are some common mistakes you see physicians making uh, with regard to their financial planning? You mentioned the things to do. What are the things to avoid that are, that are common
0: You know, a big problem is poor student loan management. And I'm not just talking about spending too much in medical school and taking out too many student loans, although that is a problem. I'm talking about what you do with it afterward. Way too many people are deferring their student loans or putting them into forbearance. That is almost always the wrong move. You should be in an income-driven repayment program. Uh, The payments are not very much more And they might be zero dollars still, but all those payments you make, and I say make in quotes because they might be zero dollar payments, count toward forgiveness programs, right? So it's a huge mistake if you end up going for forgiveness and you were in forbearance during residency, it's a terrible mistake. Um, Same thing if you choose the wrong income-driven repayment program. If you refinance when you should have gone for public service loan forgiveness, right? You've just taken your federal loans and made them private loans and now you can't get them forgiven. That's a huge mistake. Or when you're not going for public service loan forgiveness and you haven't refinanced your loans, you might be paying six or 8% instead of paying 3%. Uh, So those are a lot of mistakes that people make with their student loans. But probably the biggest one doctors make is they spend too much and they save too little. You know, I generally recommend attending save 20% of their gross income for retirement. That's just what it takes to retire at normal age. 5% is not gonna cut it, but most doctors have no idea what their savings rate is. You know, Just take how much money you saved toward retirement last year and divide it by your gross income, that tells you your savings rate. And if that's significantly below 20%, you need to take a real hard look at your lifestyle and realize that if you don't do something about it now, you're definitely gonna be doing something about it in retirement. I mean, you mentioned at the top of the podcast, of us are not millionaires at career end. Now, some of those are terribly tragic stories of people that got disabled without disability insurance or had three divorces or whatever. But most of the time, the reason those docs are not millionaires is because they spent too much and saved too little. Uh, Another issue people have with their investments is they don't have any sort of coherent written investing plan. They're just collecting investments. They're an investment collector. And so they end up with a few stocks and a few mutual funds and a few cryptocurrencies and whatever the uh, investment flavor of the day is. And they throw it all together and kind of forget about it and hope they're doing okay. Whereas there's no underlying mix of investments that was thought of beforehand and they try to adhere to. And so I think a lot of people still need some sort of written investing plan, whether they write it themselves, whether they work with a financial planner to get it written, but they need some sort of a written plan. And then finally, I'd say Too many docs are worrying about the wrong things. They're worrying about asset protection, right? Despite the fact that almost no doctors lose personal assets in a malpractice situation. They worry about timing the market rather than time in the market. You know, they should be worrying about things like their savings rate and their mix of investments, their asset allocation. Instead, they're worried about how their Tesla stock did last month. And that's just irrelevant to their financial goals. So they need a goal-driven process. It starts with their goals looks at their investment accounts they have to invest in, looks at their mix of investments and finally selects the investments instead of worrying about all this other stuff. uh, They just don't have a framework or a plan to put it all into. So I think those are probably the most common mistakes I've seen doctors making.
1: You know, it's interesting you mentioned the Tesla stock because oftentimes when I go out to spend time with folks that are in the medical or dental field, that comes up a lot, you know, not Tesla necessarily, (laughs) but, you know, stocks, this stock went up, that stock went down or you can invest in this. What about that? What about crypto, et cetera? And it feels to me that it's maybe out of um, like when you don't have a language to talk about your overall strategy and portfolio, then you default to the thing that you can talk about, which is, oh, I heard on the news X, Y, and Z is, is kind of going up or down. Do, do you sense that? Like, I, I'm curious whether it's, it's literally like a lack of an understanding about how to come up with a strategy and therefore kind of defaulting to something that's just easier to wrap your head around.
0: Yeah, for sure. And, and this, this is hardly a physician-specific problem. Although the Tesla thing feels a little physician-specific. Docs are really into both Tesla stock and Tesla vehicles. They're really into them. I mean, it's, it's almost uncanny. If you say anything bad about either one of them, you get a bunch of hate mail. But you're right. It's just, there's no coherent investing plan. I don't care if somebody really loves Tesla and wants to put 2% of their portfolio into Tesla stock, or they want to have some Bitcoin as 5% of their portfolio. I, I don't care. What I want you to have is some sort of coherent plan for the rest of it. You know, that is not just 40% Tesla stock and 25% Bitcoin and another 15% Ethereum and, you know, a couple of other stocks. That's not a sensible portfolio. You need a sensible portfolio. If you want to have a little fun money with 5% of it, knock yourself out. But the rest of it is serious money. You ought to take seriously and you ought to invest it like a professional would invest it.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. And, and probably uh, the most important advice that I think a lot of folks might take away from this is to to put together a plan that makes sense for where they are in their career. I'm curious, do you, do you feel like med school should be teaching financial planning? And, and if so, have you seen any examples where it's being done right?
0: Yes, I'm more and more excited every year to see another medical school put in a course. Um, But we're probably talking about five or six schools at this point. Now, 10 years ago, there were zero. So five or six is awesome, I think. But there's obviously a lot more medical schools than five or six. I think the best way to do it is as an optional two week course uh, as an MS4. That time period between when you match and when you leave school. I mean, who are we trying to kid? right? What are you really learning in that time period? You're doing an elective or two, getting ready for residency, taking it easy. That is a great time just before you start earning money to really wrap your head around personal finance and investing. And so I think that's the ideal time to learn it. And those who have started programs, uh, that's generally when they have put them in. Typically what it is, is some sort of evening course every night for two weeks, two or three hours. They bring in some guest speakers, Uh, And they teach the basics of personal finance and investing. And if you've never learned the basics of personal finance and investing, this is a life-changing course. You know, I mean, it's probably worth millions of dollars to you over the course of your lifetime. It's like the first really good financial book you read. Um, When you combine that knowledge with a physician income, it's just worth a lot of money. And so, yeah, I think medical schools should be doing it. You know, if they're gonna charge you fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars a year for this education, they could throw in a little bit on how to manage the loans properly afterward, right? I mean, it's not that big of an ask.
1: No, I totally agree. And and I'm curious, you know, let's say you're a student out there listening to this and you say, Well, that sounds great for the students that go to those five or six schools, but my school doesn't offer that two week course that you're that you're speaking of. What would you suggest a student do if they have exactly two weeks and they are dedicated to spending two, three hours a night for two weeks, you know? In all, we're talking about 30 hours. What should that student, that may know nothing about investing, what's the first step for that student to take uh, to, to get savvy on this stuff?
0: You know, I've dedicated a large portion of my time in the last 10 years to providing the answer to that question. I mean, the White Coat Investor is designed for that. It's designed for medical students and dental students and residents and, and practicing docs to become financially literate. I mean, the information is free there on the podcast and the blog and our pre-monthly newsletter. You know, it's basically there for free. We have communities of docs and our forum and our subreddit and our Facebook group um, that can answer your questions. I mean, the resource is there when you're ready to learn. It is there. But what would I do if I had two weeks? I would probably start with books because the nice thing about books is you spend a lot more time when you write a book than you do a blog post or you participate on a forum and you make sure you get it right and you put it into a framework. And so when you read books, you get a framework that allows you to hang future information that you learn onto the framework and know where it fits in. And so I would say, read some books during that time period. And on my website, I have a list of recommended books. I think you ought to read one that's physician specific. Obviously I'm partial to my own book, the white coat investor. uh, But something like that, I think you ought to read. I think you ought to read a basic investing book, something like the Boglehead's guide to investing. I think you ought to read a basic personal finance book, Something like uh, perhaps the only investment guide you'll ever need. It says investment in the title, but it's really about personal finance, most of it. And then something on behavioral finance I think is worthwhile, such as how to think about money. Those books aren't, you know, nothing terribly special about them. There are other good books out there, but reading a handful of books over the course of those two weeks, I think will pay some really valuable dividends. And then putting together a budget for that first intern paycheck that you're going to be getting and having some idea of where your money's going to be going during your residency, I think is, is about all you can ask for people. And hopefully at that point, they'll come out of it with a plan for their student loans. They'll buy disability and life insurance if needed as they start their training. And maybe they'll even start investing a little bit of money into a Roth IRA during residency. And if they do that, it's a win, right? The rest of it can wait for that last year of residency, quite honestly
1: that's awesome and, and i imagine many people well beyond residency would probably be uh, able to to kind of jump in and, and find value there as well what, what is your sense on you know i always think about behavior change and this is a behavior change issue you know you're describing how the tools are there for those that want to execute a plan many people are probably not there yet They're pre-contemplation or contemplation not, not quite ready to do that what is your sense on the reasons that folks aren't ready to jump in and start learning? What is the block for a lot of folks that you've seen?
0: I think we're busy. I think that's part of it. Doctors are busy people. And, uh, and we got a lot on our mental plates, you know, and this is something else we feel like we have to do and is sitting in the background. The other thing is a lot of us bring some weird baggage into our adult lives with regard to finances, stuff we learned from our parents. Not necessarily that they taught us, but that we learned from their example. And we bring that baggage into, into our lives and it produces these blocks that keep us from really confronting our finances and addressing our financial problems directly. And so working through those, you know, whether you need an advisor or a coach or a therapist, uh, to work through those is, uh, I think, worthwhile doing. Uh, but the main thing is people just haven't realized the power of getting their finances under control. I mean, financial literacy plus financial discipline, that combination is so rare in our world that it's like having a superpower. You know, I mean, here I am at mid-career, I'm financially independent, meaning I don't have to work for money. I've got an awesome schedule, right? I only work day shifts in the ER on days that I essentially pick at will. I go on vacation twice a month. Now, why can I do all this? I can do this because I took care of my finances. You know, there's plenty of income as a physician to do this sort of a thing in your life by mid-career. And if you will take advantage of that, become financially literate and apply a little bit of financial discipline into your life. I'm not asking you to, you know, reuse your plastic bags and your paper towels by any means. You only have to be relatively frugal you will have those sorts of opportunities and that sort of freedom and flexibility that you will want by mid-career. I promise you, you will want. Um, you know, as hard as that might be to, to imagine as a MS4 or as a PGY3, by mid-career, you're going to want some flexibility in your career. And the way you do that is by taking care of your money.
1: Now, obviously in the last year, COVID has changed how healthcare is practiced in many settings. I'm curious, how has it affected folks Personal finance. Have you seen any sort of shifts in terms of uh, how people are thinking about money or how they should be investing their money that came up because of COVID? Has it revealed new, new things that, that folks were unaware of before, whether that means government opportunities, new regulations, et cetera?
0: Well, I think there's been a lot of things people have learned over the last year. Um, on the financial side, I think we learned a few things. One, we learned that our incomes, our doctor incomes, are not as stable as we thought those who are doing, you know, elective quote unquote procedures, they're basically all canceled for two months. Their incomes went to almost zero. And even those of us who are in more essential specialties, if you will, I mean, emergency department volumes dropped across the country by 40%. Not only did people stay home with their silliness, but they stayed home with their MIs and their strokes and everything else because they're so terrified of getting COVID. And even today, I think we're still down eight or 10% from where we were before the pandemic. And so I think a lot of us learned our incomes are not as stable as we thought. And so a lot of people became very interested in side gigs last spring, you know, whether that was telemedicine, whether it was medical legal stuff, whether it was starting a blog or podcast or getting into real estate investing or whatever it was, I think doctors became much more interested in developing some sort of additional source or, or multiple sources of income. What else did we learn? I think we learned as well that maybe our uh, career paths are not as stable as we thought. Um, There is a lot of angst among emergency physicians in particular right now. There was a report that came out from our national group, ASEP, that we're projecting a surplus of emergency physicians and everybody's wringing their hands and trying to figure out what to do about it. Uh, And a big part of that is simply that there was less hiring this year because those emergency department volumes were down. Uh, but there's some other factors that go into it as well. And so I think that's got a lot of people thinking about maybe that they don't have a 30 or 40 year career ahead of them. And maybe they need to be saving a little bit more money or developing other sources of income again. I think we all learned something in the bear market last year, right? That was a very rapid bear market and recovery. Hmm. Uh, I remember I, I invest about the same time every month. And unfortunately it worked out to be about two weeks before the bottom of the market last spring and two weeks after. And so I totally missed the opportunity to to buy low in that bear market because it was just too short. And so we learned that bear markets can be both long or at times they can be very short. And people need to keep in mind if that's the only bear market they've ever been through. Most of the time the recovery is not that rapid. It usually comes, but it's usually a matter of years, not a matter of weeks. Um, So I think that's an important lesson to learn then as well. And the other thing that I think was really interesting was to see just how willing the federal government was to support the economy by printing money and spending money and passing out money willing nilly. You know, uh, the PPP program that many of us business owners benefited from last year, uh, you know, might have been worth twenty or $30,000 to a doctor, depending on how many employees they have. And of course, those making under $100,000 got their stimmies, you know, they got their stimulus money. And then interest rates were kept, you know, artificially low. And really, the government just spread an awful lot of money around. And I think that has surprised a lot of people just how willing the government was to do that. Now, maybe this year, we're paying a little bit of the price for that with some of the increases in inflation that we're seeing. But whether that was the right thing or the wrong thing to do, I think it surprised a lot of people that the government went as far as it did. But I think those are probably the the main things to learn. But overall, I think we learned that both the people in the system and the system itself is surprisingly good at adapting and is maybe more resilient than maybe we thought it was.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's a nice list of learning points and certainly ones that I had flagged in my head as well over the last year in terms of specifically how how willing the government was to spend. It was very interesting to see that um, and the ramifications of that. So I'm curious, you know, you have a very interesting career and you're obviously very relatable. You um, practice clinically and you now have a lot of folks following you. Do you have any final parting words of advice for folks that may be just joining the you know, healthcare profession in terms of how they should be thinking about themselves and, and thinking about money more broadly?
0: Sure. Uh, medicine is still a great profession. You know, I mean, when I was applying to medical school, all the doctors were warning me about how terrible of a career it was going to be and all the HMOs were going to ruin it all. Right. And we're still hearing that today. We're still telling that to medical students and pre-med students that everything's going to be terrible for you and you've missed the golden age of medicine. But the truth is medicine's always going to be a great profession. It is a wonderful way to help people. It's a great career and it still pays pretty darn well. Um, it's still a good deal financially. If you come out of medicine with the average physician income, which is about $275,000, and the average physician debt, which right now coming out of an MD school is about $205,000, that is a good financial deal. That is a good investment. You know, there are some things out there, some professions out there where it is not a good investment. You know, veterinary medicine comes to mind. The average debt and the average income of veterinarian is not necessarily a good deal, but medicine is still a good deal. Dentistry is not quite as good, but it's still reasonable. Law school, if you're not at a top 20 law school, I'm not sure you can say the same thing uh, these days. It may not be a good financial deal. So it's a wonderful profession. It's still a good deal. I know there's a lot of angst about people as they borrow more money than they've ever made in their entire life to pay for their education. But if you're getting out of medical school with two or $300,000 in debt, let me assure you that you will be able to pay that off. You do have to do a few things to pay it off, though. You have to have a plan for it. You have to live like a resident for two to five years after you finish residency. But if you will do that, you can pay off that debt, and you will have a wonderful career and a wonderful financial life. But you just have to have a plan to take care of the cost of your education up front. So I suppose those would be my, my parting words.
1: Well, that's fantastic. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Dolly, for being with us today. And thank you for putting together those amazing resources. I know many, many people find them uh, helpful, including myself.
0: You're very welcome. It's my pleasure.
1: So I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together.